This is a Vault Studios production. A few years ago, I drove out to a small county in western Kentucky called Todd County. It's home to the oldest Amish settlement in the state. Yeah, it's mostly carpenters, farmers. They've been there for years, ever since I can remember. Growing up, I knew Todd County had a high Amish population, a Mennonite population. Uh, So everyone in the community is familiar with them. And what do you see, I mean, that other communities might not see? Uh, Horse and buggies. You have to be careful when you're driving. It's slower pace. uh, there's a lot of manners, a lot of chivalry, you know, yes, thank you, yeah, please. Everyone's smiling quite often. According to the county's website, the Amish population in this part of Kentucky is a new order Amish community that dresses plainly, uses a horse and buggy, and speaks Pennsylvania Dutch. But it's a little bit more liberal when it comes to technology. That explains the tractors and other modern machinery I saw out in the fields. Still, in many ways, it felt like I was entering a different world than the one I live in every day. A world that revolves around peace and tranquility. I think anybody can, can start where they are now. Um, no offense to your business, but get rid of the TV, get rid of the modern, you know, uh, just make some changes, you know, starting today. That's the lifestyle Marjorie and Amos Yoder chose for themselves when they settled down in this part of the state. By the summer of 2015, four years before I visited, both were in their 70s, living in a quiet community called Guthrie. Amos was known in the community as a skilled carpenter, and nearby residents told the local paper he and Marjorie were wonderful neighbors who would do anything for you. That's why nobody in Guthrie could believe what happened inside their home in the summer of 2015. What was the state of the residents when your crime scene investigators were there? Did it look like it had been ransacked? That's a good way to put it. It looked like it had been ransacked. I mean, there was stuff that was obviously out of place, uh, documents that were left on the floor, different things that should have been put in drawers, in closets that were out of place. My name is Shay McAllister. And I'm Madison Wade. We're both journalists, and for years we've been covering unsolved cases on TV, talking to investigators and families of victims, all pushing for answers. Cases we haven't forgotten and still want to see solved. This is Beyond Bardstown, Unsolved. Shay, we're going to be looking back at a case you covered a few years ago in Western Kentucky. And I can tell you, I've never covered a case quite like this in my career. Start by telling us about the victims in this case. Madison, today we're talking about the murder of Amos Yoder and the attack on his wife, Marjorie. The couple was in their late 70s when this happened, and it happened seven years ago. So what really sets this case apart is their community. They were Mennonites, and they were living in the oldest Amish settlement in Kentucky. That's really interesting. You just don't hear a lot of stories involving violence against the Amish or Mennonite communities. What was it like traveling out to this area to cover this case? 
So to get there, we drove about three hours west of Louisville, that's where I live and work, to a much more rural part of Kentucky. We took interstates for most of the drive until the end when it turned into smaller highways and then even back roads to get to the area where this crime happened. And as soon as we started rolling into Amish country, we knew that we were getting there. It was all farmland. There was some churches. There was one general store. And then we drove by what looked like a historic schoolhouse. And there was actually kids running around playing outside. The girls were wearing long dresses with little white bonnets. And then the boys were wearing long sleeve shirts with black pants and black suspenders. And we slowed down a little bit just to look at them. As soon as we did, the teacher rang the school bell and all of the kids filed back into the building really quickly. Further down the road, we came across the general store and they had a lot of seeds and spices and grain. And after spending some time just in the store talking to the owner, he agreed to talk to us and tell us a little bit about life in this community. Uh, well, the, the Mennonites and, and Amish, which there's about 500 families in the Tri-County area here. We do work together a lot. We're not, we're not a cult. We're still individuals very much. Uh, we still make our, you know, each individual family has, has got its uh, liberties and freedoms. So he respectfully told us his family doesn't watch the news. Actually, they don't even own a TV or a radio. He said this is a really important part of life there. And so everything, the television and the, and the modern entertainment and news, excuse me, brings to you is, is all, it's all loaded with that strife, you know, and resistance and, and not conducive to a peaceful and uh, so that's it's our order, the way we understand it in, from the Bible, is to live a quiet, peaceful life. And that's what we're trying to maintain. This had to be an interesting experience for you as a journalist, learning about this community that tends to be pretty isolated. Well, it was so interesting to be down there and actually talking to them about it. Because, you know, on any other story, if you go to a you go to a normal small town and you find out that a business owner was targeted for being a business owner and he was killed. You ask another business owner if they're afraid, they would likely say yes. In this particular community, when I asked another business owner, the owner of the general store, if he was worried about this, if this made him nervous that he could be next, um, he said no. He said that that fear really doesn't exist in their lifestyle you know, everything they do is to reach a level of peace every single day and that they know if they live a good, honest lifestyle that, you know, they will get their ultimate gift in life, which to them is going to heaven. So it was, he was just incredibly calm and sincerely unafraid, which is definitely different than what we're used to hearing. I can only imagine how rolling into this Amish community with cameras and a news van might be perceived. Was that business owner at all hesitant to talk to you? So we had anticipated some of that hesitancy. We had an idea that people might not be incredibly eager for us to be there. So when we saw the general store, we actually went in and spent some time in the store, just looking at the different items that were for sale. We talked to some of the women working in the store. And after we'd been there for about half an hour, you know, we told them who we were and what we were doing and told them that we'd be really interested in talking to them to learn more about the community. 
And at first they were like, okay, you know, sure, we'll, we'll talk to you. But of course we can't be on camera. You know, it just goes against our lifestyle. And uh, we completely agreed with that and had a conversation that was about 30 minutes. So at that point we'd been there for about an hour. And then I asked him again, you know, would you be comfortable with us recording just your voice, not not your your body at all? Um, just so people could hear this, you know, from your words. And after spending about an hour with him, he did agree to that. So it definitely took some time um, of just being there and learning from them and and gaining their trust in a way before they really opened up and started telling us about what life was like in this particular Amish community. Well, family is, that's the the centerpiece. Uh, If we should ever lose the family uh, center, we would pretty much have, it would be a lost cause. And so, and so community comes next. It's, yes, family is certainly, it's the reason uh, people look at my business and say, if, you, if this would be out on 68, if this would be in Bowling Green, uh, you could make millions, you know. And, and I say, well, the re- I'm here because of the family. I'm, I'm here primarily for the lifestyle. And uh, I'm okay having the public come in and do business, but I, I don't want to move my family to the, to the public and, and live in the, in the, out there. So Amos and Marjorie, the victims in this case, were part of this community? Yeah, that's right. So the couple was in their 70s. Amos was not originally from this area, but it's where they started their family. Amos was a couple of years older than his wife, Marjorie, and together they had six children, 43 grandchildren, and at the time of the crime, 29 great-grandchildren. We only have one picture of the couple, and in that picture they were dressed in traditional Amish clothing. Amos was wearing a white long sleeve shirt with black suspenders, and he has kind of a long white beard. And then Marjorie was right next to him. She also had white hair. It was tucked back into a bonnet. She was wearing glasses, no makeup, and she had a dark blue dress on. In this picture, the couple's smiling. And really, that's all we know about them. Like I said, in this tight-knit community, they aren't really eager to talk to people from the outside world. And that includes police. A state police officer actually told us about this when we asked him about the officer's relationship with the Amish community. What would you say typically about crime in the Amish community? Is it rare? Is it non-existent? To be honest with you, I don't know. And we don't know because they keep to themselves. If there's crime within the community, it's something that they keep inside. They very rarely call for us. So they deal with everything within themselves? If possible, yes. But then something so horrifying happened. A family from this community had no choice but to call police for help after finding Amos and Marjorie bound and beaten in their bedroom. It takes a special kind of offender to harm someone that cannot protect themselves. When I covered this case back in 2019, it was in the hands of Kentucky State Police Sergeant John McGee. I've been reviewing the murder case of Amos Yoder that initiated with the robbery of him and his wife, Marjorie Yoder. By the time I spoke with Sergeant McGee, four years had passed since the attack, and no arrests had been made. I wasn't briefed on the case until within the last few months, so... 
we're trying to play catch up, so to speak, and review all the evidence and see what's been examined and what still needs to be done with the case. Um, do you think at the beginning there was hope that this would be a quick, quick case to solve, or do you think it's been difficult since the start? I believe that it's been difficult from the start because of the information that was originally received. Uh, they, the investigators in probably did not have much to go on as far as a description or whether or not it was a random home invasion and robbery. But McGee says his team has come a long way. And when I asked how close they might be to solving this case, his answer surprised me. I, I believe that I know who done it. I believe that I know who the perpetrators were that was there that morning. More than one person? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, no doubt in my mind. Shay, backing up just a little bit, you've been telling me about this Amish and Mennonite community in Guthrie, Kentucky. It keeps to itself and has pretty strict beliefs about avoiding influences from outside their faith. But then, as you mentioned, something so horrible happens that forces them to bring in outsiders for help. Exactly. So here's what we know about that day. A family member was bringing food over to Amos and Marjorie at their house. Police said that this was normal and the family was expected. So the house sat toward the front of a farm. There was no neighbors on either side. Remember, it's a pretty rural area out here. But there's a pretty clear view of the house from the road. So the family walk up to the house, and immediately they know that something is not right. We talked to state police about what happened next. The residence was usually kept secure throughout the night, uh, but whenever the family members arrived at the residence, the door to what they referred to as the washroom was located, and it was standing open upon the family members' arrival. So the door was just wide open when they got there? Yes, ma'am. I'm guessing that's when they knew something was wrong? Yes, ma'am. After they went inside the residence, they could hear Miss Yoder yelling for help. And then that's when the family member located them inside the bedroom. Both of them were inside the bedroom? Yes, ma'am. And Amos was already dead? That's correct. Madison, so this is what they found in the bedroom. It was horrifying, especially for those family members who made the discovery. Police tell us both Amos and Marjorie were tied up and badly beaten. It was such a violent attack, there was blood splatter around the room, and Amos was dead. Family called 911, and Marjorie was rushed to the local hospital. But her injuries were so severe, she had to be care-flighted to a larger trauma center down in Nashville. Luckily, she did survive that attack. So, Shay, this crime must have just happened for that, that other family member to walk in with, with groceries and for Marjorie to still somehow be alive. Yeah, so here's what we know about the timing. The family arrived around 8 o'clock in the morning. That was the time they told Amos and Marjorie that they'd be there. And Amos, of course, was dead. Marjorie was barely alive, but she was alive, yelling for help when they got there. Police tell us, based on the story and the timeline that they have put together, they think this crime happened sometime between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. And Marjorie does remember being awakened from sleep, so that would make sense. Both victims were asleep, and they were awakened by the perpetrator standing over the top of them, yelling and demanding money. Another interesting thing police added was that 
they don't think that the intruder in this case had a plan to kill them. They say that they think the intruder came in with the intent to rob them, to take uh, what they assumed was a large sum of cash. We are not for sure how much money was taken. We suspected it was several thousand dollars. But that they didn't really want to kill them. And so that could have been an unexpected turn for everyone. Undoubtedly, somebody involved, this has been eating at them. They are not typically capable of killing someone. They didn't intend to kill someone that morning. And I believe that over the last three and a half years, they've struggled with the crime that they committed. And to that person, we want to hear their side. We may, I suspect that it wasn't an intentional killing, but I need to hear their side of the story to help us catch the people that really did mean to harm Mr. and Mrs. Yoder. Shay, it really does seem like a miracle Marjorie survived this, just given how horrific the attack was. How is she doing now? So Madison, really all we know about Marjorie is what police were able to get from her early on in the investigation when they were interviewing her in the hospital. You know, like we talked about with these Amish communities, it's really important to stay distant from the outside world. And while we extended an invitation to them to be part of the story, we would have loved to talk to anyone in the family. And police passed on our message. Um, Everybody declined. Nobody really wanted to say anything more about it. And it's been seven years. Of course, for that family, life will never be the same. After something like this, how could it? But for many in this community, things have returned to the life that they knew before. When I asked the man who runs that general store what he thought about the crime, if it scared him, you know, he's a business owner, if it made him worried that something could happen to him that's similar, he said that death isn't scary as long as you live the life the way you should before you're gone. I'm thinking back to the crime scene. Obviously, getting help from Marjorie was the priority. But what was happening with the investigation at that point? You mentioned blood spatter. I can imagine police were eager to collect that for possible DNA testing. And I know it's important to collect that kind of evidence as quickly as possible. Absolutely, Madison. That kind of evidence can be key in tying someone to the case in the future, But the blood was only part of the crime scene that caught the attention of police. The detective told us there was literally a trail of evidence left behind that helped police piece together what had happened there. After reviewing the pictures, whenever they was first processing the scene, we was able to tell where the victims were at at different times during the assault. Uh, And I think that has helped us kind of put a timeline together with the incident. Police were able to create their own timeline. And then when Marjorie was stabilized, she was able to fill in some blanks from the hospital. She told police that they were asleep in bed and they woke up to someone standing above them demanding money. Marjorie said that person was yelling at them. And police think that they broke in through the front door, tried to find the money and couldn't, which is why the house was ransacked. Then police say they went to the bedroom and asked the couple to give it to them. Despite Marjorie seeing the suspect, she wasn't ever able to tell police what the person looked like. She said she didn't think it was someone that they knew. She said she didn't recognize the 
person or the boys, but they was dressed in black. That was the, the best description that she could give us. I believe the, at the time of the morning, it was low light, as you can imagine, uh, and she just wasn't able to, to give a good description. And so she couldn't say like male or female, certain ages, anything like that, just person dressed in black. Correct. Did police have any idea why the suspect chose their house? Was it something personal maybe they had against them? Police told us that they think the intruder was from the outside of the Amish community. And that would make sense as to why Marjorie didn't recognize them. Remember, they stay fairly secluded from the outside world. But they do think that the suspect knew Amos and Marjorie. Police say they think they picked that certain house for a reason. Have police ever had any suspects in this case? Did the evidence collected or DNA testing ever lead anywhere? Not yet. And this happened seven years ago. Police say they also collected fingerprints from that scene, and they actually put them in a system where they're still comparing them to new fingerprints, even that are being added today. They say they think that that's where their best chance at solving this crime will come from. That or someone talking. Madison, I'm sure you hear it all the time when you're covering these cases. Yeah, definitely, Shay. Police and people always hope a guilty conscience might inspire someone to come forward. But seven years, it may seem like a lot of time, but when we're covering these cold cases, some of them are, you know, 20 and 40 years old. Um, the, The longer a case goes, you know, that guilt just builds up over time. Absolutely. And it's something that detectives are banking on in this case. They're really hoping that there's someone out there that knows something that eventually decides to come and speak up. Well, I mean, it could be something as simple as somebody driving too fast in the morning of of June 28, 2015. Early that morning, uh, somebody could have been remembered being run off the road or, or seeing a car that was driving too fast through the city limits. It could be something as simple as that. Um, Anybody that may have been what we would refer to as casing the area in the days or evenings prior to June 28th, anything that that the citizens of Todd County might have seen like that could be a huge break for us. It might not seem like a big deal to them, but it could be huge for us in this investigation. Beyond Bardstown Unsolved is a production of Vault Studios in partnership with King 5 in Seattle, WHAS 11 in Louisville, and ABC 10 in Sacramento. Make sure you don't miss any future episodes by following or subscribing to the show wherever you're listening right now. And to talk about these cases with other listeners, be sure to join our Facebook group, Unsolved Insiders. Beyond Bardstown Unsolved is hosted by me, Shay McAllister, and King 5 anchor and reporter, Madison Wade. Our producer is Reed Redman, and our executive producers are Will Johnson and Brian Weiss. Thanks also to investigative journalist Andrea Ash. Audio mixing is done by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. (laughs) 